Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South Podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, we both had some weekend travel. You went to LA, I went to Nashville. How was your time in uh, in Pac-12 country? It was amazing, man. You know what they say about the <laughs> what the what they say about the weather. I regret to inform you, totally accurate. It's really nice out there. People were really cool to me. Got to experience some really like once in a lifetime experiences filming uh, the Trumpet Awards for Bounce TV, so that was super fun. And uh, yeah, man, got to interview the guy from um, Curb Your Enthusiasm on a red carpet. It was a really fun weekend overall. And then, like you said, you know, you got to be the uh, the what would you? You're not a cheerleader necessarily. You're like a support staff. What was your role in Nashville? Um, that's a, that's a, I, that's a good question. I would probably say we were, we were in the cheerleader type role, mm-hmm. but what it kind of turned into, um, so for those, those who don't know, or maybe haven't listened to a recent pod or something like that, we were in, uh, we were in Nashville. Um, my wife, my sister-in-law were running a half marathon, really cool setup. Uh, it was like right through the heart of downtown in Nashville, a lot of fun, spent a couple days there. And my brother and I were, um, we were just cheering on our wives and we held up signs, one sign that said, uh, we, we, we just had four signs, all of which were quotes from the office, of course, <laughs> because what else is there? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I felt kind of bad because my brother came up with the idea of um, like the, the quote that Michael has where he says, I am Beyonce always. Like, <laughs> I can't remember. I think it was a situation where he was cheating on, uh, or no, he was the the other man in the, in the relationship with Donna, and somebody's like, oh, you're Ali Larder, and he's like, no, I'm Beyonce always. So anyway, um, long story short, we had signs, one of which said, you are Beyonce always, that we just held up for like, I held that sign up for like 45 minutes, and I kid you not, hundreds, hundreds of smiles and laughs from that very sign, including the two that mattered, of course, our wives, Aww. who let's let's be honest, like they 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 did the they did the work. They were the ones who actually crossed the finish line, did the thirteen point one, survived a half marathon in very ridiculous heat. So tip of the cap to them. But I'm just saying we brought a little bit of joy into people's lives. We did. If you guys want to see the cutest pictures, go ahead and look at Connor's socials because they're they're adorable. I'll give you credit on that. Yeah, we had, we, had, we had a great time, despite the fact that, and I, I haven't told you this, so we're gonna get to football stuff. We'll, we will get to football stuff, um, I, I promise you, but a quick story. There were probably no like worse circumstances to start this trip than what we endured. Um, we originally had our, our return flight home was changed from, it was originally supposed to be leaving out of Nashville, coming back to Orlando at four o'clock on Sunday. So we're like, all right, we'll, we'll have like a Sunday in Nashville. We'll be able to do some stuff, maybe some country music hall of fame, hit a couple of other spots, whatever, we'll make a day of it. It'll be a great time. And instead, they decide that that flight is going to be moved up to one. But on top of that, it was going to have a six hour layover in Fort Lauderdale. Now, mind you, I live three hours from Fort Lauderdale. Hold on, you said the flight got moved up? Yes. I have one. honestly never heard of that in my life. I've heard of flights getting pushed back because things are late. That's insane. So multiple, this was like, like three weeks ago mm-hmm. like that this was changed. So we're like, we don't want to wait six hours in Fort Lauderdale, especially when we live three hours away. We don't want to be like run a car. That's you know a, another added expense. We're like we just don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. So we ultimately had to switch our flight to to nine thirty coming back to, to Orlando, and it essentially wiped away a day that we had in Nashville, which kind of sucked. Like we didn't get a Sunday in Nashville. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I had known that we were going to endure something even worse, I wouldn't have complained about that. So. <laughs> 
on Friday morning, we were supposed to, we were gonna get an Uber at like 8.30 in the morning. Our flight was 11.06 out of, out of Sanford, which is the easier of the two airports to fly out of in Orlando. It's much, much smaller. Um, not nearly the chaos that, that MCO is. Mm -hmm. And we got into a little debate on social media about the worst airport in the country, MCO versus LAX. Look, it's fair arguments. Yeah. It's a toss up. It's a legit <laughs> toss up. So, um, so we're supposed to be waking up at 7.15 in the morning and Lauren at 6.50 wakes me up and says, our flight has been canceled. <laughs> Which, bro, okay. If it's, for, if it's for a standard weekend away or something like that, you're like, ah, you know, that, that's a bummer. Uh, I, guess, I guess we're not going, or maybe we'll try and get a later flight out or something like that. But this is, we were going to Nashville because they were running in this half marathon. Mm -hmm. You spent months training for this. You can't just not go. Right. They had the audacity to say, oh, actually your flight's not canceled. It is moved from Friday morning at 11.06 to instead 6 p.m. on Saturday night. Who in their right mind would have accepted that travel rearrangement? It makes no sense. None, none whatsoever. That's just so a company like, like kind of betting on screwing YouTube because like, you know, yes. percentage of those people were just like, ah, like either didn't know how to like call and complain about it, didn't have the time, didn't have the energy, but it's like, no one, that's never a better situation. Whenever you plan on that and then something totally different happens. Terrible. So <clears throat> they tell us, they tell us, all right, four hours, or, or like they, they tell us four hours before this flight is supposed to go off, that that it's that it, it's it's not happening for us. And we're like, well, crap, we, we have to see if we can scramble and find something else. They'll refund us for that flight. But then of course we, we look, we start looking on, you know, different apps and whatnot. And we're like, Flights are crazy expensive, yep. crazy expensive because it's day of. Yep. You're booking day of. That's that's nearly impossible to do. And so we, in a 20 minute window, had to. I I, I booked us on another flight, only to then realize when Lauren was trying to check in, you idiot, you booked us on a flight for Saturday, not for Friday. <laughs> so then we have to call and cancel that right. and, and cancel that reservation. And then in like within five minutes after that, Lauren schedules on a flight that's triple the price of what we originally paid. And we had to, uh, like, we would have made the McAllisters look like zombies. I mean, <laughs> we were everywhere. I tell you, everywhere. We made it to our gate, which going through MCO and arriving there when you are, you know you're, you're running really late. Mm -hmm. That's about the worst feeling in the world yep. is going to that that's place. A fact. It's hell now, that's a fact about MCO because it, the whole thing about like the Disney kids and all that stuff, it's like all of those people that are in charge, it's one of those airports where it's like, if everyone's cool, everything goes well. But if like three people aren't, whole thing oh grinds to <laughs> It's terrible. It is absolutely terrible. We got to our gate 20 minutes before takeoff time, mm -hmm. but we made it. And the rest of the trip was great. I'll save kind of the rest of the trip, some of my thoughts on like downtown Nashville, Broadway, all that stuff for figure it out that we'll do um, strictly related to Nashville on Friday's pod. Mm -hmm. But it was it was absolutely awful. And just after we talked about flight horror stories last summer, and I, just when you think you're kind of out of the woods with those, something like this happens, and you're like, this why why do people ever travel? Why why do they go anywhere? This is just this is terrible. Uh, life was just life was so frustrating for the first part of that day. But we got on the flight, got to Nashville. It was a great time. All well that ends well, I guess. Well, hey, listen, man, when we did flight uh, horror stories. It was the last time I flew to LA, and they lost my tripod. Don't you know it? They lost the same yep. tripod on the, on the same no. flight. Now. 
I was sitting there just laughing. I was just like, sure. You know what? If you guys are going to buy me a new tripod in LA, I'm sure there's some nice ones out here. I don't even care. Whatever. Unbelievable. Gosh, that's such a that's such a frustrating feeling. We we were like thinking that they're going to lose our bags in Houston with the connecting flight. Oh, yeah. Because that's where we lost our that's where they lost our bags last time. And it took like three, four days for them to get our full bag back from California, which had like thousands of dollars worth of like clothes and, and stuff in there and whatnot. Um, they did not lose it this time. And it somehow got to Nashville. Listen, yeah, the bar is the back. floor and sometimes airlines clear it. So good this for them. Cool. They did something right, man. Good. <laughs> rarely, though. Very, very rarely. All right. Today, here's what we got coming up. Uh, first time guest it is CBS Sports' uh, Shahan Jayaraja, Jaya who is just awesome. Uh, knows the Texas scene really, really well. Got into some stuff about Longhorns, talks from Oklahoma, talks from A&M with him. Uh, we're going to have to have him back on because he's, he's my dude. We talked a lot off air as well. So uh, look out for that. And we're also essentially going to do like an NFL draft preview of sorts in Bold and Brash. A little bit different, but kind of wanted to do it in that sort of way. We're also going to be recording um, after the first round on Thursday night. That's going to make it into Friday's pod. So we're going to have, and then a full recap, of course, early next week. So we're going to have more draft stuff this weekend as well. So fear not, it's not just going to be what we do in Bold and Brash today. But first, okay, last two SEC spring games in the books, LSU, Ole Miss. Will, I'm doing some 180s. <laughs> I'm doing big time 180s. Um, we often talked about like, you know, getting cold taked, which it's, I think it's just like an easy way for us to be self-deprecating. We can kind of make fun of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Every once in a while though, I'll do something that actually kind of has the opposite effect of that. Like I'll get a, a take or a prediction in at the last possible moment that ends up aging really well. It, it's like um, to compare it to basketball, we're in NBA playoffs mode. I know you very much are. Shout out to the Pels. How about the playoff um, Pellies, man? Just shout out to them. It's been a, been a whole it, ride. Love it. Not No shout out to the playoff Bulls, but playoff Pellies, yes. RIP to the playoff Bulls as well. Yeah. Um, Okay. Uh, anyways, it's, it's like having an offensive possession that, that's kind of all over the place, but then like you somehow get a good shot up and beat the shot clock and it goes in. You're like, how, how in the world did that happen? But it did. Not, not, a very, not a very common occurrence, but it does happen and it happened over the weekend with the Ole Miss quarterback room. So I am 100% guilty of writing off Luke Altmaier in this battle. Like I, I, will, I will cop to that pretty much from January on up until like middle of last week, I was 100% Jackson Dart's gonna be the guy when we did our quarterback rankings. You know, I just put Jackson Dart into one of those spots. I didn't put Luke Altmaier side by side with him like we did for some of these other teams. But I mean, and we're talking about somebody that's tied for fourth in the way too early Heisman odds, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, I'm, Which again, I think friends, that's actually- Don't let friends do what, Connor? We don't, friends don't let friends bet on preseason Heisman Trophy favorites. We do not do that. We do not advocate for that on this podcast. I, like, I think he's actually got better odds than Matt Corral did going into last year, which is nuts. Oh boy. And yeah, um, and part of that is ironically enough, like Corral's doing in the bar that he set for an Ole Miss quarterback in Lane Kiffin's offense. But I wrote not one, but two different pieces on SDS last week before Ole Miss had their spring game in which I said, you know what? I wrote off Luke Meyer, Altmaier too quickly with this quarterback battle. The more I thought about it and the more I read from guys who, who cover the team like David Johnson, Nick Suss, these guys who do tremendous work on the beat, 
the more I kind of realized that I was way too early in dismissing Altmaier once Dart kind of came on board and Lane got him from USC. I'm gonna preface this by saying that I often default to the optics here, all right? Like, Lane cannot afford to have Altmaier hit the portal because they are really thin at quarterback. So mm -hmm. he's, you know, maybe he's going to gas him up a little bit. Maybe he's going to make it seem like he's got a chance to win the job. There, there's part of that that I'm trying to be mindful of, but like, I also think there's there's like real legitimacy to this and to Altmaier's chances to be QB one for Ole Miss this year. Uh, even if you read kind of some of the stuff afterwards, though, you see it. it it's Altmaier who's made available to the media. It's Altmaier who's in the official media release photo, like celebrating the win. It's Altmaier who's in the lead of the release that's on the team's official website, recapping the game. But my 180 before the spring game was, I think Altmaier has legitimate chance to beat out Jackson Dart. And honestly, if you watch that spring game, it was, it was only confirmed. Now, still a long way to go. Don't think that that by any means makes him the guy, but it still was very telling, I thought, watching the spring game, watching the way that it played out. So I'll get to the spring game in a second here. But with Altmaier, I made the mistake of judging him strictly based on him being thrown into the fire as a true freshman with nine career pass attempts, who was then asked to lead a winning effort in relief against a top 10 Baylor defense. When you say it out loud like that, you're like, yeah. what? Why did I? Why did I jump to conclusions based on that?" And I said afterwards that he didn't exactly have a "don't go to the portal" type of performance because outside of that third quarter, he didn't really look ready. Right? He didn't. But that third quarter, six for eight, 101 yards, had that dime touchdown pass to Braylon Sanders. Ole Miss couldn't hit a field goal from 35 yards. It was a seven to seven game. Baylor then scores. It's a pick six. Then it's all she wrote. Admittedly, though, it was unfair of me to come to a sweeping generalization about Altmaier based on that because that was the same Baylor defense that held his classmate, Caleb Williams, to 9 for 18, 142 yards, no touchdowns, two interceptions, in what was a two-possession loss for Oklahoma. And meanwhile, Jackson Dart never even faced a top 20 defense. Yep. He, only, he only faced one team that finished in the AP top 25. It was BYU who held him to 7.1 yards per attempt and he finished that game without a completion of 20 yards. There wasn't a side-by-side -side of Jackson Dart and Luke Altmaier. There just wasn't, and there needs to be. You know, they're, they're, they're both class of 2021 guys. We needed to kind of see what it looked like next to them and what this is ultimately going to be with a real quarterback battle. And on Saturday, we finally got that side-by-side. -side. And it was very clear which quarterback had a year plus in the offense and which only had a few weeks, mm -hmm. okay? Altmaier wasn't at like Matt Corral levels, not saying that. But he outplayed Jackson Dart, okay? He definitely did. Lane said afterwards, this was incredible to see this. Lane said that Dart looks like he's trying to win the battle on every throw and not in a good way with the way that he's forcing these throws. And Altmaier, meanwhile, stayed within the offense. I thought Jackson Dart looked like he was locked into finding his former USC teammate, Michael Trigg, and then everything else was just kind of all over the place. Sometimes that worked out, sometimes it didn't. He had one of those throws that kind of sailed on him or he got a little bit lazy with his footwork and you can't miss over the middle in the SEC. It just doesn't work like that. You see throws where he's you know going into triple coverage. He's not reading a, a, you know, a linebacker over the middle, like he's sailing throws. And you know some of the, the form, you're just like, ah, you know what? You'd prefer that to be better. You're gonna make a lot of mistakes if you continue some of this stuff. You see the arm talent, of course, it's definitely there, but he is by no means a finished product. And some Ole Miss fans might've looked at Jackson Dart in the spring game and said, that's young Matt Corral right there. That's, that's who that is. What, what I think though is 
totally misconstrued with Corral and Kiffin's track record is that because he's had a ton of success, because Matt Corral has had a ton of success, that it's easy to play quarterback for Lane. And I totally disagree with that. I, I really do. And I'll defend that. And if people want to talk about that in the draft, I, I get kind of frustrated hearing that over and over again about like, oh, well, he got to play in Lane Kiffin's offense. So it's, you know, how much can we really take stock in that? Mm -hmm. And we need not forget that Matt Corral is the guy who was so pissed off that he couldn't master the offense in year one that he tells a GA for Ole Miss, he's like, hey, I, I need you to come in at 5.30 so we can do film sessions because within the confines of practice, I am not understanding this. And it took him getting to that place in spring ball where he was making those mistakes. And he still had those growing pains in year one, but he was able to work through them. And ultimately he became somebody that was so respected within that program. We forget though, how hard Matt Corral had to work in that first year to understand reads because so often in his two years with Lane, he made it look easy. At points, I thought Luke Altmaier made it look easy. With Dart, it just does not look easy. He's got a ton of work to do to make it look easy. We don't know if he's gonna be a film junkie and kind of take those major strides in this offense. It's Luke Altmaier who, as Nick Suss wrote, leading up to the spring game, he, Altmaier was the one who would text his high school coach plays or film room observations at like one in the morning. All right, that's not a given. You don't always see that with some of these guys. I think he has a much better chance than I gave him credit for. At the same time, it's unfair to make sweeping declarations on Altmaier from the Sugar Bowl, and it's also unfair to make sweeping declarations on Dart with just only a few weeks in this offense. He's by no means looking right now what it'll probably look like in the fall. We just need to remember a few things here. One is that while optics would suggest Lane wasn't satisfied with Altmaier's Sugar Bowl performance, and that's why he went out and got Jackson Dart, Ole Miss was always going to need a quarterback. Mm -hmm. They really were. I mean, Matt Corral went to the NFL draft. John Rice Plumlee transferred to UCF. A year ago, Cade Renfro transferred to Arkansas, and they didn't sign a scholarship quarterback in the 2022 class. So you're kind of looking around, you're like, dang, they're really thin. They got Kincaid Dent, who's been there for a little bit, but th he's a depth guy. I mean, that, that, that's kind of what it is at this point. He's very clearly the third string guy. So even if Altmaier had lit up Baylor in the Sugar Bowl, I think they were always going to go after a quarterback in the transfer portal. The other thing to remember is that Lane goes to the beat of his own drum when it comes to deciding quarterbacks. He just does. Mm -hmm. John Rice Plumlee was the fan favorite in 2020, and he went with Matt Corral. I was one of those people banging the drum for John Rice Plumley. I want to see him in Lane's offense. I think Lane can make this work, and I know that he has limitations as a thrower, but I just love to see what he can do in space if you get the right guy kind of scheming for him. And it turns out, yeah, Lane knew what he was doing, and Macarrell was the right choice. At Alabama, go back to 2014, Blake Sims, he was the surprise winner of that battle with Jay Coker. 2016, Jalen Hurts, true freshman. He was the lower-rated recruit in that quarterback room, and after the season opener, he was the guy. Mm -hmm. And he got that job instead of older, more decorated quarterbacks like Cooper Bateman and Blake Barnett. Like Lane doesn't always just default to recruiting rankings or you know or seniority. It's it's a lot tougher to kind of figure out. He doesn't have that typical mold in the way that we might assume that he does. Even though like that, those some of those you could say Nick Saban had influence on that. Of course he did. Lane was just the offensive coordinator. It wasn't the head coach. Like you're crazy if you don't think that he had major say in those battles. Oh yeah, I mean look what happened when he left as well. It's like he that offense was 
I hate to say all-lane, but he changed that offense. I give him so much credit for that. You're absolutely right. And like you said, I'm really glad you brought that up because the Blake Barnett thing was like, I remember going into that season. That, shout out the uh, worst intro of all time by USC in that game, but I'll never forget that game. Oh. I'll never forget that game where, you know, it was Barnett, and then Hertz comes in, and he fumbled at his first play, and it was like, oh, great. Yeah. Like, here's how this is going to go terribly. And then Lane stuck with him because that was his guy. And so you're absolutely right. It's like, hey, when was he wrong? Kind of never. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, even if even if Hurts was the guy that, that was kind of getting that buzz throughout camp, it's it's still something that, that Lane needs to kind of see it play out. And then he makes that decision. And he just, he has his own unique way of thinking about this. And he's not just going to be like, oh, you were, you were the better recruit just because I got you, you know, in the transfer portal. I mean, he doesn't have to worry about Jackson Dart transferring because, like, he already used He can't. <laughs> he's <guessing>. trapped. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a lot different with Altmaier, obviously, because he can go elsewhere and play immediately. I don't know if he'd be able to do that at a Power 5 program or anything like that based on the skill set. But if he can develop within the offense at Ole Miss, he still has a chance to kind of be that guy. I trust Lane to figure it out because, as we always say, that's just what Lane does, figures things out. But I am definitely doing a 180 on the notion that Dart was locked in as Corral's replacement. Also, this is different. I'm not crazy that Dart is wearing number two like Corral. Oh, like wow. Yeah, I didn't even realize that. That's tough. This is, look, this is number at USC. I get it. Retiring Matt Corral's number that quickly after his career. It's like, uh, it's as we saw last year with the way that they, they retired Eli's number, that, that's a really big deal at that program. I, you know, so I'm not saying that we should like just automatically put Matt Corral up there in the rafters. I'm not saying that, but one of those, one of those moves I'm like, um, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I would I would opt for for a different number if I if I were Jackson Dart I would I would maybe push in that direction but you know what he's gonna do what he's gonna were do the, were the NFL GMs taking the quarterbacks to lunch I mean like you're ordering that points but no you're right that that's like a weird <laughs> move and uh, yeah like. Going back to it, man, this almost reminds me of like in pro sports when you bring in like the big free agent and it doesn't quite pan out, but it like lights a fire under one of the rookies butts. It's like, this is exactly what happened here. If you think about it, it's like, regardless of what you think about Jackson Dart, I think it raised Lou Goldmeyer's level. You know what I'm saying? And sometimes having that guy in camp that's the presumed starter, if you're a competitive type of guy who takes everything personally, is exactly what you need. You know what I'm saying? Not that he would have ever been lazy. I'm not saying that about Altmaier. But when you bring that guy in and your coach essentially says, hey, I'm picking another guy after you, like not thanks, but no thanks. But like, uh, we like a guy with a little bit more experience than you. You know me, like I'm, I'm super competitive. Whenever that's happened in my career, it's like I am going to work sun up to sundown to prove you wrong, buddy. And so yeah. sometimes that's, that's the best way to do it. So in the end, Lane could end up looking like a genius for a very different reason from what we anticipated yeah they're, they're the same age you know and, and they're tight too yeah. that's that's been the, the report out of camp is that guys get along really well it's not one of these hostile battles and you know where they're going to be subtweeting the other any, anything like that and there was always rumors about Matt Corral and John Rice Plumley and kind of their relationship if they were actually friends if they kind of hated each other you kind of listened to you know John Rice Plumley was the guy who heard Matt Corral talking about those 530 film sessions and was like hey what, what do you mean what are you what are you doing I'll, I'll, I'll go to those too <laughs> so, we're having film sessions no not we buddy yeah a <laughs> little, little different too I mean there was the age difference as well like one guy had the job then the other had it so like just different dynamics that go into it. I think this is a different situation than AM last year. I, I continued to say over and over again, don't sit here and tell me 
that Zach Calzada is on the same level as Haynes King. I'm, I'm not willing to, to go <laughs> there. For, even after the season, that wasn't a cold take, buddy. <laughs> yeah, look, we, we had Dave Pash on after he called the spring game, and I sort of pushed back on this notion that they were at, at the same exact place. I thought Jimbo was just kind of doing him lip service, and their quarterback room was really, really thin. They needed to keep Zach Calzada around. I think this is different. I, I, think, I really, truly think this is a true battle, and now I'm, I'm more interested to kind of see where it ends up. Okay, similar 180 with LSU, pretty similar. I think this is a legitimate three-way battle, and that's not to say that Walker Howard was disappointing in the spring game or anything, just don't think he's going to be billed as the guy in a room that has four scholarship quarterbacks as of this recording. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think right now that Brian Kelly has made up his mind with his quarterback situation. Similar to, to Ole Miss in some ways. And maybe I'm just falling for what they're selling and I'm gonna look back and kick myself and be like, why didn't I kind of read the tea leaves here and, and, and understand the, the dynamics at play? But I do find myself becoming more intrigued by sort of the forgotten second year guy of the bunch, which in this case is Garrett Nussmeyer. Mm -hmm. Again, he's the guy who could transfer. So of course, he's the guy that's first in the team release. If you look on the website, an LSU official website, but I liked what I saw from him in the spring game. That's coming off of a spring in which he's been getting a lot of buzz. How much of that is just gassing him up? How much of that is really him making that year two step? I, I don't know, time will tell with that, but I did think that he kind of confirmed some of that buzz. He definitely looked like things have been slowing down for him. That's always the key thing. That's the cliche thing that gets thrown out there, but, but it really is true. And it's obvious to the naked eye when it looks too fast for somebody and when it looks like, okay, I've got this, I can take a deep breath. It's like the panic breaths versus the three deep breaths and this sense of calm. And you're starting to see that a bit more with Garrett Nussmeyer, at least more than what you saw from him as a true freshman in that offense. And even with a pretty overmatched offensive line, I, I like that we saw him take that next step. I think that overmatched offensive line might be part of this. And Will, you might want to earmuff this for a second here. I brought up this point with Vandy. Oh boy. <laughs> I, just as I thought, nothing you say about LSU could hurt me. Strong start. <laughs> yep, yep, not the greatest way to preface this, but I think sometimes you realize that you need a quarterback who will be able to react to having a bad offensive line. On the surface, that favors Jaden Daniels and it favors Garrett Nussmeyer to a certain extent, as opposed to Brennan, who, as we know, probably not the best dude to subject to a poor offensive line, which yeah. if you were keeping track, that offensive line allowed five sacks in the first 20 plays. I get it, it's one hand touch, take it for what it is, but at the same time, wasn't a convincing performance from that group. Better in the running game than they were in pass pro, but still, uh, it left a lot to be desired in that area, I thought. If you saw Brian Kelly's comments afterwards, a little more awkwardness from him. <laughs> He's gonna need a filter. He really is. He's at the place where I'm just waiting on the comment that he's gonna make in the regular season that he's gonna legitimately have to come out with some sort of apology for <laughs> or walk back in an embarrassing way. Not like, you know, he's not telling a post-game joke about executing his team, but just a mistake that he walks back with from a personnel standpoint. They're just like, oh, you shouldn't have said that. You definitely shouldn't have said that. Well, listen to this uh, and tell me which part of it stands out to you. This is Brian Kelly uh, talking about the LSU quarterbacks after the spring game via 24-7 um, sports. Okay. 
We didn't clear up anything with the quarterback today. We probably made it more difficult. Brennan was good today. He knows the offense, he's smart, he takes care of it. We talked about Nussmeyer's athleticism and his arm strength. Daniels is really fast. Walker's got one of the strongest arms on the team. So I don't know if we cleared up anything there, close quote. Which part of that said to you, wait a minute, what, what did he say? Hmm, that seems a little bit PR. I mean, I, I would guess, I would guess the Walker thing, right? What's, what stood out to you? Daniels is really fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what? I read, you're right. Cause as you read that, I was like, that's, a, I am very fast. Like Michael Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Look at you go, Michael. <laughs> you just carboloading Fettuccini on the sidelines of the sprint game. <laughs> that was one of the sides that we held up uh, that, I, that I came up with. Uh, Eat less Fettuccini Alfredo, drink more water. <laughs> uh, yeah, look. Think about this. If, if those comments are, are any indication, Kelly was somewhat underwhelmed by Jaden Daniels, at least so far, so far. Um, I think he sees the flashes. I thought the two most notable throws of the day that Jaden Daniels had um, were, one was uh, a pretty ball to Brian Thomas where Thomas made a nice play in single coverage on the right sideline. It looked like uh, that's where Daniels was always going because by the time his left side receivers were kind of getting out of their breaks, you know, kind of making that move, he was already uncorking the deep ball to Thomas. It looked like he was just trying to look the safety off and he made that play. You could see that being a staple of this offense and you could see why Daniels doing things like that as a true freshman really helped maximize what was a pretty talented receiver room at Arizona State with Brandon Ayuk. Then that, that touchdown pass that he had to, to Jack Besh on a, a little pick play, a little, little tiny pick play, nice scheme from Mike Denbrock, a timing route, which it, it looks really easy when your quarterback knows that's there and it would have been a much tougher throw to make if he had waited a second longer. Desmond Ritter made throws like that all the time at Cincinnati mm -hmm. and in Denbrock's, in Mike Denbrock's offense, you just realize kind of like having that maturity is, is really key. It's a staple of it. They ask you to do a lot. I don't know that you can rely on Jaden Daniels to always recognize that just yet, but I do think that Kelly perhaps like not hyping him up is a sign that he wants to see more from him. He wants to see more of this progression. Obviously though, the opposite of that is if Kelly comes out and declares Jaden Daniels the leader in the clubhouse, Nussmeyer is probably going into the portal by the time he finishes that sentence. Right. Okay. Like that's, that's part of it. I, I fully understand that. But also remember that very few programs can get away with a three quarterback battle heading into fall camp. 2016 Alabama will bring it up again. Mm -hmm. That's one of the few that you can kind of think of going, oh yeah, they were able to make it work. It was a testament to Jalen Hurts that he overcame a lack of full reps with the ones to look as good as he did as a true freshman and ended up winning SEC Offensive Player of the Year. Different situation that we're talking about here with LSU though, and these four quarterbacks, I guess, if you want to include Walker Howard in that conversation, I think the idea of starting Miles Brennan in that offense kind of gives Brian Kelly some concerns. Mm -hmm. I really do. And I, I say that as an owner of Miles Brennan's stock, right. okay? I, I'm still pro Miles Brennan, but I do kind of worry about that after seeing some of these offensive line issues. 
I also think there's a fear that Jaden Daniels won't develop the way that he wants him to as a decision maker. And, and some of that immaturity will, will surface and it'll prevent a, a really talented group of receivers from truly flourishing. They'll make those occasional plays like the one Brian Thomas had, but kind of you know sustaining those drives and being reliable in that way, moving the chains consistently, that's just not going to be there at the level that Brian Kelly wants. And I also think that two guys like Kelly and, and Denbrock who have started guys like Ian Book, Jack Cohn, and Desmond Ritter, they love the idea of having a grown adult out there making decisions. And that could be the fear with rolling the dice on somebody like Garrett Nussmeyer, who we know preserved his red shirt because he didn't play in the bowl game. And he has that very limited experience, the four game, four game threshold, which obviously he got more reps in that Arkansas game, but still you, you don't know fully what you're getting. It's the known versus the unknown. And I don't even know if there's really that known with LSU. It is a new offense. Miles Brennan has three starts in his LSU career. And Jaden Daniels in a new scene, you're kind of like, well, um, it's still a bit of a gamble. It, it really is. And if he's going to make those mistakes, do you worry about dividing the locker room? There are just a lot of different things to consider. So my 180 isn't that I thought Kelly would come out and declare a winner. I did right. not think he was going to do that. My 180 is I thought he would have a pretty clear plan. And I thought I would have at least a decent idea of what that plan would be coming out of spring, or at least I would feel like I knew the pecking order. And right now, I don't know the pecking order. I don't think he knows the pecking order, which I think bothers him. And I think that's kind of some of the frustration that you saw from him post-game talking about. You were hoping Brian Kelly would declare a winner. He was like, all these boys losers to me. <laughs> so, Brian, you, you can't be that negative. Uh, you do have to start a quarterback. Right. You will have to pick one. We're running wildcat offseason based on that spring game, bro. I'm, I'm done with these boys. Hey, running backs look good, man. Yeah. Running backs look really good. Yeah. I, don't, I don't like coming out here and uh, comparing guys to Clyde Edwards-Alaire, but you know what? It, we're, Okay, we're we're still we're still I think at a better place for the running back room. Noah Kane's not even there yet. What were you about to say? Optimistic. That no, no, I, I just don't like comparing guys to <laughs> Just generally, yeah. Yeah, just generally, okay. Like just maybe pump the brakes on that. You know I don't like Cam Newton comparisons. Right. Okay. Uh, Claude Edwards Alaire, a member of the All Bang the Drum team by the end of twenty nineteen. By the middle of 2019, you know what? He was a member by October of that year. Mm -hmm. I want to be on the record for that. So I don't, I don't feel great about Clyde Edwards-Alaire comparisons. Um, but yeah, I thought you were going to talk about uh, Armani Goodwin. I love him a lot. He's really fast. He's really speedy. That's who they compared to Clyde Edwards-Alaire. Okay. Yes. Well, see, see, yes. this is this is a great, uh, great tandem. But yeah, if you guys are willing to see something crazy, go watch Armani Goodwin's highlights of like shortened COVID season. My goodness, man, he averaged like five touchdowns a season in high school. <laughs> like, well, this was like three A in Alabama. That was back when he was committed to Auburn and stuff. But yeah, LSU has a lot of really interesting scrappy type of guys. That's why like the whole thing about Boutte, I think was like so important to get him on the same page because it was almost like when he was out, there almost became a little bit of a divide between him and like these type of guys. You talk about neighbors, Chris Hilton's another guy we didn't really see in the spring game, but like they have like all these skill guys who are not three stars or anything, but they they weren't like these blue ship type of guys. They're just dogs, man. I'm really excited about the, the spring game or sorry about the 
like the the takes out of the spring game with this personnel and watching them all kind of grow up together. That's kind of a the down or the upside of having a disaster of a football team that LSU's had for the last two years. You have the COVID year and last year they relied on so many underclassmen, and now those yeah. guys have these game reps where it's like, okay, now it's time to actually go win some football games. They it really can't get worse. Like I hate to say it because I thought that after 2020 and Boyd did it, but you know what I'm saying? Like it's a lot different from a lot of these like Power Five recent national champion programs where it's like who's going to replace X, Y, and Z? Where it's like X, Y, Z through F are all kind of still there. You know, some guys obviously transferred, Coy Moore, guys like that, but really the guys that like are being leaned on, I think this whole process has made them stronger, made them like closer together, and hopefully Boutte can kind of get on that page with those guys that have been through it, you know? I got a weird take for you. Oh boy. I see if you agree with this. Um, and not, not really related to quarterbacks. Could the LSU receivers be held back by the corners or lack thereof in terms of proven corners that LSU has? Mm -hmm. This makeshift this makeshift group that Brian Kelly has assembled via the portal where he goes out and gets three guys from Power Five, he gets banks from Ohio State. Like, do we do we have any concern whatsoever that LSU's receivers will lack development because they don't have corners who can guard them and they just dominate these dudes in practice? Yeah, I think not having Converse hurts a lot. Hurts a lot. He was, uh, he, I think he was the guy I was most excited about. And, you know, got the dude from UL that you talked about. I really just think it's a chemistry thing. I think you get so many guys from, I mean, base defenses, as we talk about, we're a very base defense friendly pod on here. A lot of them are different, man. A lot of defensive coaches, even more so than offense today, a lot of defensive coaches will teach you different schemes and different little, not even schemes, but like, uh, uh, bullet points like you need to focus on this this and this so when you get all those guys together you know it, it's it takes a while but i love the defensive staff you got a lot of hungry guys uh sheep steep diesel our favorite but uh yeah let me ask you really quick about seven banks did you, do you know anything about him i didn't really get to watch him in ohio state no i didn't really get to watch a ton of him to be 100 percent honest with you i'm gonna have to hit up dust my guy dustin shooty for a little bit more of an in-depth breakdown on him but Man, for a while, Ohio State corners were just like money in the bank. Yeah. You just couldn't go wrong. You had Lattimore, you had Akuda, and you kind of look across the board and you think to yourself, like, it's just going to be every year. Right. Every year, they're just going to have one of these lockdown studs. And then for a bit, it got kind of crowded in that in that defensive backfield, much like much like how it got crowded in that receivers room. Mm -hmm. um, and now, yeah, to see to see a guy like Banks transfer, they had the the change uh, change of defensive coordinator as well. So I, I don't know how much that specifically was related to it, but I don't know. I, t I tend to think with with the position like corner, unless unless you're like an Eli Ricks. <sighs> You should usually be able to kind of figure things out and kind of play with, within a scheme mm -hmm. for the most part. So I do kind of question that and what exactly the pushback would have been. It's like, if you're not, if you're not starting a corner, it's like you, you might've been doing something to hurt yourself. Yeah. But then again, we talked about that with Jamison Williams last year and transferring from Ohio State. <laughs> also, like, well, Ohio State transfers, pretty high in exactly. the SEC. So Ohio State corners, good. Ohio State transfers, good. Love to see it. Yeah, we'll have to get a more uh, in-depth breakdown of, of Seven Banks and, and what he's going to be able to do for LSU. But yeah, I, I am a little bit about, I'm more worried about the corners probably than any other spot. Maybe the offensive line and pass pro yeah. would be the other <laughs> issue. That was not great. Not great. But yeah, 180s we are doing with Ole Miss and LSU, those quarterback situations to close the spring. Let's kick it to uh, Shehan. Uh, guy's awesome. I mean, I, I really enjoyed getting to chat with him. Great feel for all things college football, but I, I really wanted to talk about that specific region of the country with a sort of Big 12 shift to the SEC, and he is very well versed in that. So here is Shehan. 
I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Shahan Jayaraja. Let's start with this. Um, have you ever penned a letter to a former employer um, after unexpectedly leaving them during the peak of your career? Or is that just like a, a Lincoln Riley thing to do that months after the fact? <laughs> <laughs> I have not done that. Uh, you know, I kind of figure if I'm going to do it, you might as well just do it right away. Right. You might as well right? just uh, talk to people. And the other thing, too, is that if I'm going to take the effort to do that, I might like want to say anything, like just anything at all, instead of like, here are some things that happened. And uh, anyway, now I'm moving on to a new job. It was, it was such a strange letter. Like, there's no good way to do it. I'm not saying that there is. There's nothing that he could have said that would have made everything better. But uh, there were things he could have said to make things worse. And he said a lot of them. Yeah, it's just such a weird thing. I've, I'll never be able to go inside the mind of, of a head coach who's made that kind of money when you're a god in a, in a, in a town like that. It, it just sometimes you just have these moments where you're reminded that coaches don't live in reality at all. And he clearly felt like he should do something, but things were just too hostile at the time of, of the move to, to come out with something kind of waited for the smoke to die down a little bit. But like, speaking of smoke, I think the letter he should have, he should have written that would have probably gotten him some more respect would have just been like, if he had penned a letter to SEC fans, put it in Birmingham or something like that, where the SEC offices are and just say, sorry, I just didn't want that smoke. <laughs> there, there are a lot of things he could have done that were different than how he ended up doing this. I mean, one thing was like, this past weekend at the spring game, Baker Mayfield gets a statue dedicated to him because he won the Heisman Trophy. Like, I'm not saying he has to come to the thing. I mean, I think that that's not reasonable for a lot of reasons, but like, it feels like it could have been something like maybe you send him a letter or so. I don't know. There's a lot of things that I feel like Lincoln Riley could have done to, to make things better. And granted, at the same time, I think that we can all acknowledge right now that OU fans are crazy and nothing that you could say to them is going to make anything better. But uh that, that's a good argument to just not say anything. Just don't, man. Just sometimes the, the best words are no words at all. That's that's the way I've always been been taught. But what it's what's kind of created though is this this fun new rivalry where USC and Oklahoma are kind of looking over each other's shoulder. And, you know, from a national perspective, I think that both of them are kind of wanting to show the other, Hey, we're doing just fine. We're going to be better than you. And the spring game optics. I mean, those are, those takes are just flying all over the place. USC has, you know, a record turnout for USC. And at the same time, Oklahoma sitting here bragging about having 73,000 for the spring game, whatever it was. Uh, I think that Oklahoma in the short term has the the better ceiling, but USC long term kind of projects more the championship type level. Where do you kind of stand on that? Where both programs are going to have those those bragging rights? It's going to be real interesting because when you look at Oklahoma and just deciding to make that move to the SEC in general, a big part of it was they felt like we can't recruit a lot of the type of kids that we need to being in the Big 12, right? We can't recruit the linemen. We can't recruit whatever else, right? And, and you've even seen in kind of the months since, since they made that decision, they've gone more into Alabama. They've gone more into Missouri. They've gone more into the Southeast. And so that's what they feel like long-term is going to be helpful for them. The flip side of that is obviously USC, where you kind of have a little bit more of a similar situation to what Oklahoma has been in the Big 12, where you have this easy path to the playoff. And I'm curious whether they've run into that same issue of, 
well, we can't recruit the linemen that we need. We can't recruit whatever, whatever that we need. I, I mean, because obviously I think that, you know, different states and different regions of the country obviously produce different types of talent. You're going to get really big kids in the Midwest. You're going to get really fast kids in the Southeast and also with some big kids too. And, and in the West, we've got a lot of really fast kids, uh, you know, coming out of California and such, but you don't have that bulk partially because kids are eating healthier, but yeah. you know, it, it does play a, a role. Right. And so, now we have seen USD already start to go national, and I think they're going to be a national brand, and I think that everybody's going to want to play in Lincoln Riley's offense. But, um, you, you know, I think that I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how those gambles kind of go against each other, right? Where you do have USC, I mean, realistically could be in the playoff every single year <laughs> once we get to a 12-team playoff. Oklahoma is going to miss the playoff a lot, but are they able to kind of make those marginal changes to, even though they won't be in the playoff, maybe are they closer to a championship? That, that's kind of the gamble right now. If it were me, I, I mean, I'm betting on Lincoln Riley and a path to the playoff and having a puncher's chance every year. I understand why that was attractive to him, but you know, I mean, Oklahoma is one of the top three greatest programs in the history of college football. So it's not like they're not going to compete. In a weird way, though, the unknown is is almost Brent Venables. It's kind of lost yeah. in the shuffle. Like, we don't know who Brent Venables is going to be as a head coach just yet. You know, it's kind of strange to think about that because he's been a household name in college football for, for so long. But I, I think part of it, too, is because we haven't really seen the, the Dabo tree expand into the head coaching, you know, that, that side of it just yet. And now we're going to see what it looks like with Tony Elliott, of course. And you know, it's just interesting because I think if you if you have like a vision of who he is as a coordinator in these disciplined defenses, it doesn't necessarily equate to handling quarterback battles and all these different things. And Kirby Smart obviously struggled with that for a really long time. Who do you think Brent Venables is going to be as a head coach and what should we expect to kind of see from him and his style? It's an interesting question, and, and I think that it's interesting that you point to that Dabo Sweeney tree because the two branches that we really have at this point are Chad Morris, yeah. which, you know, oh, uh, you, you know, SMU was a fun time. It was fine. Uh, Sonny Dykes came in and did way better, but, you know, we, obviously we know what he did at Arkansas, <laughs> and we've seen Jeff Scott, and Jeff Scott, it's not all his fault at South Florida, but not great, but you know, these are the two coordinators who really were the guys at Clemson, right? I mean, Tony Elliott going to Virginia and Brent Venables going to Oklahoma. I mean, these were the people who really built that program. So I think that they're going to have as good a chance as any to kind of take that next step. And Brent Venables has been desired for a long time. We, we obviously know about Kansas State going after him. There's been plenty of other really big time programs that have gone after him in the SEC, in the Big Ten, in the ACC, everywhere else. Uh, and he wanted to wait for the right opportunity for him. And he got, you know, one of the premier jobs in college football. So it obviously worked out for him. I think the one thing that we're going to see right away, there's no question about it, is we're going to see a renewed toughness at Oklahoma. That was a big criticism under Lincoln Riley, that this was a team that was very well schemed and had a lot of talent, but didn't necessarily play with an edge. And, and you don't need to play with an edge necessarily to, to win at the highest level, but it does help, especially when you're trying to play a defensive style uh, kind of system. And so I think we're going to see a lot more of that. We're going to see that in every aspect of the team. I, I think that a lot of the time we see teams take on the personalities of their coaches. And so I think that we will see a very blue collar type team. Now, the flip side of that is, okay, you know, he recruited really well when he was at Clemson. It's a different world having to be the guy calling the shots, having to do the identifications, having to figure out exactly what you want. I'm going to be curious what his recruiting strategy looks like. I know he can recruit. That's not in question. But, you know, what does that kind of strategy look like? Um, and, and the other thing, too, is that 
you know, I like that he has been alongside dynamic offenses, obviously, you know, those Clemson offenses with Trevor Lawrence and with Sean Watson were dynamic and he figured out how to defend around that, but it is different. Now you're bringing in a coordinator and Jeff Levy, who is going to speed things up and is going to make it really hard to play defense. You know I mean? I, I think that it's going to be interesting how he manages those things. Some defensive coordinators kind of go in a direction of wanting to slow things down to protect their defense. We haven't seen that, which I think is a good thing, but, uh, but like you said, managing personalities, managing quarterbacks, the defensive head coach, these are things that, that you can't really prepare for. And uh, you know, I I'll point to Dave Aranda, right. In his first season at Baylor, a defensive head coach, one of the great defensive minds in college football, it was a transition. He did not have a good time that first year trying to figure out all the other sides of coaching. It's not going to be like that. They're not going to go two and seven like Baylor did that first year. But I do think that there will be a little bit of an adjustment as you adjust to a new league, you adjust to a new roster, you adjust to not having one of the five most talented rosters in college football, especially on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, I I think you'll be fine long term. He's won everywhere that he's been, but it's going to be a transition, I think. Yeah, I, I love the the approach so far. And, and like you said, the fact that he was willing to go out and get Jeff Levy, who uh, the, the discussion of complementary football has been really well documented in this era where we're seeing more of these up-tempo offenses. And the fact that he was willing to go out and get a guy like that. And then he kind of doubled down by getting, you know, Dylan Gabriel to, with the, re, the reunion with Jeff Levy, of course, and what that could potentially look like. And these guys are used to playing a certain style. And, oh, maybe that'll hurt his defense, but it's good for maybe the team long-term. They can have a bit more, a bit more balance on that side. Um, you live in Texas. We got a lot of Texas things that we gotta we gotta discuss here. Um, if Quinn Ewers breathes, it's it's pretty much news. I, that's the way that it's been so far since he returned to Lone Star State. I, I talked about him as a as a great Heisman bet, and he's way too early odds at forty to one. But I almost compare him to like one of these child prodigy singers or something like. You, you kind of see them have a viral clip and you're like, whoa, the talent is just off the charts. But then you realize there's there's so much more to actually being a superstar. You've got to have the right surroundings. You know, you've got to mature. You don't know what your voice is going to look like after puberty, like all these these different things. That's a weird comp for me to make. But that's kind of <laughs> how I feel about Quinn Ewers after watching some of the throws that he makes where it's just it's just disgusting. Like how sold are, are you? And I, I don't need to bring up the tweet that you had over the weekend, but we could start there. Like you, you're all in with Quinn Ewers. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, the first time that I saw Quinn Ewers throw live was the 6A state championship game back in 2020. And the funny thing about this, I mean, this, I feel like this might be one of those games that kind of goes back and like people talk about later because the guy on the other sideline was the number one quarterback in the 2022 recruiting class. Cade Klubnik, who has a chance now to start at Clemson. And I'll tell you what, I I know I heard afterwards that Klubnik was dealing with a little bit of a a throwing shoulder injury. So like he wasn't a hundred percent, but man, it it just like, it was like a boy versus a man. Like, like Quinn Ewers has an NFL arm right then, you know, back in 2020 when he was a junior in high school, It, it is crazy. Like you just see the difference after seeing, you know, four days of state championship games, you see Quinn Ewers walk into the building and you're like, oh my God, that that is something different. And so from a physical perspective, from a mechanics perspective, like he, he has it, right. He has the arm. He has like the, you know, the Josh Allen, the Patrick Mahomes make, you know, throw everything on the fly. uh, You know, it's crazy, right? Like he is that kind of, of thrower. Now, 
at the same time, it is different, like you kind of said, to go from being in a situation where everything's kind of structured around you. He played with a great offensive head coach in high school, Riley Dodge. Uh, and Steve Sarkeesian's a great offensive coach, too. And he played for Ryan Day, too, who, who is one of the best in the country. But it's a different kind of situation when, you know, Texas didn't play a spring, uh, a real spring game this year because they didn't have the offensive line depth to do it at Texas. Yeah. Right? They have six kids coming in over the summer, but they're true freshmen. I mean, they're not going to be guys who you hope will contribute right away. So I think they're still going to have a lot of offensive line issues. And so it's going to be interesting to see how we kind of adjust to that. We saw some of the signs in this sort of pseudo spring game. We saw Isaiah Nair, the, the Wyoming transfer. He looks like a big time player. Xavier Worthy was maybe the best freshman receiver in the country last year. But I mean, I think it's really going to be interesting how he deals with that sort of uh, that that sort of adversity. He's never dealt with adversity before. The most adversity that Quinn Ewers has ever had to deal with was that C.J. Stroud turned out to be pretty good, and so he didn't play, but he still got paid a million dollars by you know NIL collectives and all this sort of stuff to just be at Ohio State, right? So it is going to be interesting. I, I mean. There's going to be, I mean, the expectations on Quinn Ewers are off the charts, right? Like you talk about obviously coming to Texas and all that sort of stuff. I mean, to put into context, the last perfect 1-0-0 quarterback in the 247 composite ratings was Vince Young. Yep. That was the last one. Yep. Trevor Lawrence was not. Justin Fields was not. You know, all these players, they were not a perfect rating in those rankings. So the expectations are there. The last guy who did it won Texas a national championship. And to be quite honest, if Texas isn't in the college football playoff at some point in these two years, it'll be considered a disappointment. Now that's not fair. Texas has a lot of issues that have nothing to do with quarterback play, but that's the reality. When you have that kind of rating, when you have that kind of clout, when you get this kind of talk this early on, that's the expectation. They got to win the big 12. They got to be in the college football playoff sometime in these next two years. Yeah. The the Vince Young stuff, like, (laughs) It's unbelievable to think that Texas hasn't had an offensive player draft in the first round since Vince Young. Like you hear that, you're like, how is that possible? You hear, oh, Texas, despite having easily like the best talent in terms of, of, of college quarterbacks that have developed in the 2010s, like the only quarterback who went to Texas and then was drafted out of Texas as a quarterback Sam Ellinger, that's it in the 2010s. Like that, that's what we're talking about here. And so there is that pressure on him. And with, with Sark, I, I don't really, I don't really worry about this year. I, I'd be worried about year three. Year three is going to be so huge for him. And that's, that might be looking a little bit too far into this. Cause obviously things change in a hurry, but like he's going to improve off of a five and seven year. Like he's just going to, it's going to be a better team. And it feels like no matter what though, even if they're only eight and four and it's kind of disappointing, maybe they lose to Kansas again. I don't know, but like they, they go into 2023 is probably a, preseason top seven, top eight type team where you're kind of like, man, these expectations are so high and they're going to be getting this way too early playoff buzz. Do you get the sense that Texas is going to have more patience with Sark or do you see another situation which the powers above him still could probably make a rash decision after year three? And we're like, wow, here we go again. Another guy who didn't work out of Texas. So the way that I'd answer that, I actually wrote a piece a little bit about this at cbsports.com, but the, the crux of it is that Quinn Ewers completely clears the day. He has a blank slate now. Basically, year one never happened because he got Quinn Ewers. And um, I actually compared it a little bit to Tom Herman because Tom Herman got Quinn Ewers' commitment once Quinn Ewers decommitted and decided to go to Ohio State. It was kind of the beginning of the end for Tom yeah. Herman. And so I think that for Steve Sarkeesian, he goes into this next year with 
no baggage, no red flag to start with. If things kind of look a, a lot of the same that it was last season, that's going to change quick, right? Like, I mean, it's, it is still going to be a short rope, even though he doesn't have that. I, I mean, I think that he had a great off season. He got Quinn Ewers, uh, you know, we can, we can obviously talk about the NIL stuff, but like, uh, you know, they got, one of the best offensive line recruiting classes that I've ever seen. They got like seven kids and six were blue chips and like three were top hundred, all that sort of stuff. Right. Like it was a really good offensive line recruiting class and that's what they needed in so many ways. They finished with a top five class off of a, a five and seven season. So like since, since their last game, since that ended, things have looked up for this program. But I do think that, like you said, I, if they're eight and four, but they're really competitive, they look like they have a chance to beat everybody, especially this, they play Alabama in week two. That, that's going to be a big trial by fire for both Steve Sarkeesian and for Quinn Ewers. So if they show something, right, I, I'll think back to like that 2019 Texas LSU game where uh, where Sam Ellinger has this big game and, and yes, Texas loses to LSU, but it was really competitive and it felt like something was happening there. If they have a game like that, they could lose still by three scores and it's still kind of be a game like that. Agreed. Uh, you know, I, I think that, that that's what they need. They need to not get blown out by Alabama. They have to look like they're at least competitive in that game. And they and if they're able to do that and be competitive in the Big 12 and head into November with a chance to make the Big 12 championship game, I think people will be satisfied. And, and like I said, 2023, the expectations are to make the playoff. It's to win the conference, all that sort of stuff. Like, that's just reality. And so... I do think that there has been some level of patience with Steve Sarkeesian. I think that they easily could have completely turned on him after a five and seven season. Uh, but, you know, I think that they do know we can't just be running guys out the door year after year. So I, I think that, look, when they decided to fire Tom Herman, a, a big part of it was because they felt like they were one step away. And it turns out maybe the program isn't one step away. You know, they, they didn't get an Urban Meyer. They didn't get, I mean, even you look around the country, they didn't get a Lakin Riley. They didn't get a Brian Kelly. But I think that they feel like we chose this guy and we kind of need to ride with him a little bit. So, uh, so again, if, if they get off to a bad start, all of that goodwill is gone. But at this moment, I think they have an opportunity to kind of start fresh. Here's a question for you. And I bet you've never been asked this. Is there much of a difference between Texas and Auburn? Both have elite, like they, they have a group of, of elite people at the top pulling strings. Yep. Both have kind of had these sort of like one-off championship seasons in the 21st century. Both have really struggled to replace their best quarterback in program history. And both seem really, really unhappy when they aren't the big bad program in their state. Like are Texas and Auburn a lot more similar than we probably give them credit for? Well, and the other thing I'll add to that is that in Texas, historically, of course, you know, has accomplished a lot. But, you know, when we're talking about right now, the other thing that I think we have to add to this is that they're clearly little brother. Now, yeah. Texas is not little brother to Texas A&M, but they are kind of little brother to Oklahoma. Right. I mean, they are the loser of their rivalry in so many ways over the past 40 years, basically. Right. I mean, they've had that moment. They each have arguably the greatest quarterback in the history of the, of the 2000s and one of the, the greatest in the history of college football. But those things look like flukes right now. I mean, since I mean, with Texas, you know, 1970s kind of considered the, the full integration of the sport. Texas only has one championship since full integration. Right. Like that's 50 years. That's crazy. That should not be happening at a place like Texas. And so I do think that there are a lot of similarities. It, Texas obviously has, I think, more advantages than Auburn has. They're less of a, per se, a little brother than Auburn is to Alabama. So, you know, the dynamic there is a little different. But I do think that there's a lot of similarities when you compare these two programs of 
of Texas kind of looking at Oklahoma and being like, why isn't this us? Why, why isn't this us? You know, we, we've accomplished a lot. We're one of the top 10 programs in the history of college football. We're a legit blue blood. We've won a lot of games, but like, why is Oklahoma that? Why are we this? And so I do think that that does play a part. And, and certainly when there isn't success, and sometimes when there is, you get a lot of cooks in the kitchen trying to, trying to fix the problem. Like I think you do at Auburn. SEC fans seem to have a lot of skepticism about where Texas and Oklahoma are going to fit into the conference. Whenever it is, they actually join. It's kind of tough to forecast what, what things are going to look like in a couple of years at any program in this sport. But from, from a cultural fit, from a competitive standpoint, where do you think Texas and Oklahoma are going to stack up in the SEC? So with, with, Oklahoma, I think that they're going to have a chance to kind of step in right away. And the, and the program I'd probably compare them to is like maybe a juiced up Florida, right? Like mm-hmm. maybe a Florida that's kind of got things rolling at the moment. They're going to be competitive. They're not, they're not going to go four and eight, right? Like they're going to be competitive right away, even under Brent Venables, who's a little bit of an unknown. Um, they, along with Ohio State, I would argue are probably the two most self-sustaining programs in college football. They just do such a good job of like having a structure there. You know, they have the recruiting operations, they have a great athletic director, they have the facilities, they have the funding. You don't hear about this kind of drama like you do at Texas or Auburn, like you kind of mentioned. Uh, And so I think that they're still going to have a chance to be really good. The question is, again, can they get to that next level? I don't know. I mean, some of it is just going to be waiting out Nick Saban like the rest of the SEC, uh, you know, kind of has to do too. But, but Oklahoma is going to be a team that I think wins 10 games relatively often. It's going to be interesting to see how they, uh, how they kind of uh, stack up sort of this new um, alignment, I guess you'd call it, of, of scheduling and all this sort of stuff. Some of that's going to make a big difference, but, but they're going to be a team that's going to win eight, nine, 10 games, I think most years. Texas is really interesting because Texas has never, historically been a part of a conference where they were not the top dog. They were the top dog in the Southwest conference. They were the top dog in the big 12. And now they're going to the sec where they're going to be like fifth. <laughs> you know, That's crazy. That's not something that Texas is used to. They're, they're going to have a loud voice for sure, but Alabama is going to be able to outvote them on anything. Oklahoma is still going to be able to outvote them on anything. Uh, you know, you look at LSU, you look at Georgia, like these are really good programs that, can compete. And, and Texas has been struggling despite having a massive advantage over eight of the programs in the Big 12. Now you're going to an SEC where almost everybody at least can compete with you from that perspective, at least probably eight or nine programs. I'm concerned, if I'm perfectly honest, about what Texas is long term in the SEC, because I think that they're kind of selling in their, their implicit advantage. I, I'd almost compare it to like Notre Dame. Like mm-hmm. Notre Dame has this unique place in the sport. And if they were to just go and join the Big Ten, then they're kind of just a good program. I, I think that that's something that Texas might run into. I'm curious if this is something long-term that makes sense for them. I, I don't know if maybe after 10, 15 years, if they think, man, this, this isn't for us, <laughs> you know, maybe this, is a, this isn't it. But at the same time, you know, how they go into these conferences is going to matter a lot. You say if it's if it's 2023 and Texas is off of a 10 win season this year that helps right that that helps kind of say what you're going to be long term and, and the, but the flip side is true too if they go in next year and they go 6 and 6 this year that could be something long term that becomes really problematic for them 
I really hope they go in there. Just pardon the pun here, but guns blazing. I mean, all the bravado in the world. Yeah, they're yeah. talking about the Longhorn Network. They're like, this is happening. They're and they're like serious about it. Like, no, no, this is going to be a thing. We're going to continue this. You wait and see what Texas does. And the SEC has a weird way of no matter how deep your pockets are, just kind of humbling you. And AM is is perfect proof of that. Like AM comes into the SEC and does everything they could have ever hoped for with Johnny Manziel. And they were such a must-see event early on in those days to kind of show, Hey, look, like we, we belong. And I don't know that you can, and we've kind of seen over, you know, the course of the last decade, like it's tougher to sustain that level of success, but even A&M has kind of struggled to show year in, year out. Hey, we belong. Hey, like you're not getting respect for going eight and four. You're, you're just not in this league. And how does Texas potentially handle that? How does Oklahoma handle that? The, the A&M Texas feud is, is, one of those things that I think if you explained it to a non-college football fan, and I don't know if you've had to do this in your circles living there, but like if you explain it to a non-college football fan, they would probably just give you a strange look, they, but they wouldn't really understand like all the dynamics, hurt feelings, egos, the pettiness that have gone on for the last decade here. But it's taken away one of the sport's best rivalries. I think we need to just see them in the same division pod, whatever it is, every single year. Like, that, that's that's the only way, in my opinion, for this rivalry to kind of get back what it lost over the course of the last decade. It's such a great rivalry. And, you know, I think that you really look at some of the great rivalries in college football. Uh, they're characterized by a couple of things. One, geography, of course, people who live in the same place, people who live in each other's backyards. Uh, and I think the other thing, too, are having people who are so the same, but also just like a little different. Mm. And so... So for me, I grew up in Dallas and back in the, you know, back in the 2000s when Texas was rolling and Texas A&M was really good and Oklahoma was rolling, like you picked a side. You really did in so many ways. And and Texas was like the big, you know, bad school and Texas A&M was like sort of the like underdog, but like, or, or maybe it's like also kind of the rural school, right? Like if you have sort of a background in ag or something like that, like that's really your school in so many ways. And so, you know, when you look across this state, that exists in so many ways. And, and so when that game went away, it, it did a number, I think, on just interest in college football in the States, you know, and, and it's like we've seen them try to keep it up in some ways and just like arguing over recruiting, arguing over, well, my eight and four was actually better than your eight and four because my eight and four was against the SEC, you know, like we've had this conversation for almost a decade now. It's going to be great for them to finally get back to play their games. I really hope that they keep up that, uh, that yearly game, either on Thanksgiving or black Friday. I think that's great for the sport, great for the state. And yeah, I mean, I think that that's one of the biggest wins of Texas moving to the sec is getting that rivalry back because, you know, to me, college football is so much about rivalries and it's about geography. And so that's like the one piece where Texas moving over means that, Everybody's going to be chirping at each other. And you know what? Texas A&M, in every way possible right now, has the upper hand of that rivalry, which is not something that they've had for an extended period of time, basically ever. So I'm excited to see it come back. Uh, you know, and, and yes, I agree. They need to be in the same pod or division or whatever it is that guarantees that we get that game every single year. Are you a Jimbo believer? <laughs> That's such a complicated question. Right? I, I am a believer that Jimbo Fisher puts Texas A&M in the best position to be competitive that they can. It's a great way to answer that. Yeah. The, the, the question for me, right. Is like, I mean, to be frank, Jimbo Fisher is a great coach. He understands college football. He understands the dynamics. He is one of the best recruiters out there. I mean, they just, 
pulled in the number one recruiting class of all time. But like, you can't free up your offense a little bit, like just a little bit. I think that he looks back at that 2013 Florida state team and is like, well, I didn't compromise. And when I had the quarterback to do it, it maximized what we are. And like, maybe, I don't know. I I feel like they could have run a simpler offense and still have been the most talented team in college football that year. And I don't think it really would have mattered. I think that's my, my question with him, right? How can he be flexible? How can he kind of adjust to his talent? We see the great coaches in college football do that. We saw that with Nick Saban. Nick Saban, when he has a team that passes the ball well, he leans on it. When he doesn't, you know, when, when the receivers went out against Cincinnati, we saw him run the ball. We saw him adjust his game plan. That's the part that I feel like Jimbo Fisher is missing is just that last step of, of understanding what he has and what he doesn't have. And so I think that Texas A&M is going to be as good as they ever can be under a coach like Jimbo Fisher. But like, it just feels like they're so close and it's frustrating to watch them not be able to put that final puzzle piece in. I, I guess that's what I'd say is that I'm a believer that Jimbo Fisher can build a great team. I want to see, can he adjust and understand modern college football and, and kind of take that last step instead of just kind of trying to stick to what he knows. That was a good, that was a really good way to answer that question. Like that's, that's exactly the point right there. And I, I was curious if you were, you were going to hit on that. Like the, the, the way that you construct a roster is totally separate from how you troubleshoot, how you're able to, to kind of adapt with the times. And that, that is still going to be the question moving forward with Jimbo. We even saw that last year was that calls out. It's like, dude, you can't have this offense that's predicated on, on quarterback mobility. When Haynes King isn't the dude out there. It's like, he, he's not your quarterback anymore. All right. Like you've, you've got to be willing to adjust this. And the thing is, too, the most frustrating thing is we watched the Alabama game where Jimbo Fisher was like, I'm going to make it easy for you. I'm going to make you make throws that you could make. So it's not that he can't do it. He does know how to do it. He just chooses not to because he feels like that's what's going to maximize his team is if they're able to run everything at the maximum ability. And the reality is when you have so many players who are going to be in college football for only three years, it's just not realistic. I have a really tough time um, kind of explaining like the Haynes King athleticism aspect. And it's like, I, I tried to, to get into it last year and there, I, re- I really was struggling to come up with the right sort of comp for it because those who have seen him play in high school have been like, yo, like this is not just sneaky athletic, whatever sort of stereotype you want to come up with. Like this dude is explosive in the open field and he's going to make some plays that will just make you go, wow. Are you one of these people that's still holding on to, to Haynes King soccer? Are you like, Hey, you know what? Maybe he's a little bit overhyped and Max Johnson is kind of the, the better fit to run Jimbo's offense. The thing that worries me about Haynes King is just his decision-making has really bothered me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in that Kent State game, the the one game that he started and played all the way through, he threw three interceptions, right? And, and then in the spring game, he threw two pretty bad interceptions. He didn't really look like he got his legs under him. That worries me because I think that to maximize what Jimbo is going to do <laughs> more than, than what he could do, I think that you need somebody who's a decisive and accurate passer, somebody who makes really good decisions. And late in Kellen Mond's career, we saw that kind of finally come to fruition and they have their best season that they've had in in however long. The flip side of that is that I think Max Johnson is that guy in more ways. He is the guy who understands what's in front of him, doesn't make mistakes, is pretty accurate. And I don't know 
if they're going to sort of lean on that big play that maybe Haynes King provides you in more ways, right? Like Haynes King, I think is a more explosive player, both as a runner and a passer. He gives you maybe the more upside in an offense, but he also gives you a lot more downside. And, and I think that when you look around this roster right now and you look at the talent that they have on the defensive side of the ball, you look at the talent that they have at running back. I mean, they have a crazy running back room right now. I just wonder if it ends up being the right decision for them to kind of play it safe in a way and, and play somebody who is not a game manager in the sense of being limited, but somebody in the sense of he isn't going to make mistakes. He's going to give you a chance to win. And when you're one of the more talented teams in college football, maybe managing a game is just the right way to go. All right. I hypothetical that there's no real, real, real way to like look back on this and figure out if you were right. But if you could have stock, we're, we're talking same price. Everybody, you can buy at the exact same price. You get in right now, same price. A and M, Texas, Oklahoma. Who would you? You don't have to buy all all of their stock necessarily, but who would you have the most shares of for the next five years? For the next five years, okay, that's that's a good question. I <laughs> this is tough. This is real tough. I think I think I'd lean Oklahoma because I just think that the way that they run their program is so strong. The, the question though, is like, if there's a team that's most likely to win a national championship, it's probably Texas A&M because of the talent that they have. And they might, I, I mean, just to be frank, they might have a team that's so talented that not even a bad offensive system can hold them back. Right. But when you look at what Oklahoma does, when you look at the way that they structure their program, the way that they recruit, the way that they structure their roster, uh, I'm excited to see, again, a more physical Oklahoma. I think it's getting back to what they are in a lot of ways. I think I lean Oklahoma. Um, I'm selling Texas at the moment just because I'm sorry. Like, you have a lot of good players. I'm excited about them. I think Quinn Ewers can be really good. But also, I've heard this story before. Yeah. and. Uh, and I'm in wait and see mode. You have to do it before I'm going to buy a whole lot of Texas stock. Uh, Texas A&M, I think, is in a great position long term. They're probably the team, if I had to pick, who's going to have the most top five finishes. I'd probably lean Texas A&M. But like, if you're talking about the team that has a chance to win the conference, the team that has a chance to make the playoff, I think that I just trust Oklahoma's consistency a little bit more than Texas A&M's. I want to get you out of here with a little rapid fire. Just five questions. First thing that comes to mind. Does that work for you? Let's do it. All right. Uh, does Tim Riggins get an SEC offer? <laughs> that, is, that, that is the most like Kansas State fullback of all time. That, that is the most like. Neck roll. Yeah, that's, that, that is a Big Ten player. I think that he could have some success at Minnesota. I, I don't think he's an SEC player, but I think he has a great college career. Uh, tell me why Vince Howard would have solved Texas's quarterback woes. <laughs> I mean, I think that you just want somebody who's dynamic, right? So you just want somebody who's dynamic and he's going to give you that. He did like this, like uh, Michael B. Jordan did like this fake announcement back in 2015. Remember that? Like where you went on Dan Patrick show that. and he's, he's picking between like Texas, Michigan and Michigan state. He picks Michigan state. I'm like, what the hell is this? There's so no way. Like, come Michigan on, get that out of here. Uh, come on, man. He's dying to play in a Mark D'Antonio offense. Oh God. <laughs> Gagged a little bit thinking about that. Oh man. Um, season two, just, just not nah, right. It, so it was funny, right? So, uh, so I only watched the show probably in the last five years, right? So I, I didn't watch it sort of when it came out, but um, Same. so, so season one, just like, 
it's great, but it like drags on forever, right? Like you're like, how am I still in season one? Yeah. And then season two happens and you're like, what is going on? Everything's <laughs> like moving at such a weird pace. And then obviously Landry kills a guy. Like it's just spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it's been, it's been 15 years at this point. I think that I, I think it's okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was just, the tone was just completely different. It, it's just a completely different show and not in a good way. A uh, better quarterback, Saracen, Stetson Bennett, the fourth, or alternatively, Mike Winchell. <laughs> um, I mean, I think, uh, ooh, that's, that's tough. That's, that's a tough question. I think I'm going to lean with, uh, with Saracen. You know, Ooh. he he's the guy who like leading all these game winning drives and, and part of this. Right. I mean, we can have a whole other podcast about uh, Coach Taylor's bizarre in-game coaching decision. Horrible. Horrible. Worst first half coach in the history of football. But uh, but, you know, Matt Harrison leads these comebacks. I think that uh, that you look at those other guys and they're a little bit more game manager. Obviously, once. You know, with Mike Winchell, I think that uh, that once more was put on him, it didn't kind of go quite the same way. But uh, three great quarterbacks, three legendary quarterbacks. <laughs> All right, last one. Uh, Coach Taylor's college comp is who? <laughs> Coach Taylor's college comp. Um, well, I'll tell you in terms of looks, <laughs> it's Seth Luttrell at North Texas. That dude. Oh looks yes, a lot. He looks a lot like like that guy. Um, it's college comp. So you're looking for somebody who obviously invests a lot off the field as, as he does on the field. I know that this guy can be a little controversial sometimes, but like, I think that Dabo Swinney is probably the closest thing to coach Taylor. Right? Mm. You know, he, he's somebody who does the speeches. He invests in the kids. Like, I, I think he also does like a great job with the way that he builds his program. Like he does sort of bring in sort of the under-recruited kids with these five-star kids. So like, I feel like his program is kind of structured that way where you're kind of dealing with those dynamics. Um, there, there might be somebody that I, that I am forgetting, but I think that Davos Winnie is probably the first one who comes to mind. Yeah. I was going to say, I don't like the adjustment part. He, I mean, he had to adjust like North Dillon. Right, I mean, you were, right. come on, you're, you're dealing with a different crop of talent. I don't know that Davos ever had, if he's ever had to like make that type of adjustment, but though I guess he's adjusted his offense over time and he's moved on from like just the Chad Morris, even the Billy Napier stuff way back in the day. And they're a little bit more pro style now. So that's a, that's definitely a, a fair comment. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, really, really appreciate the time, man. Uh, Texas forever. Texas forever. How about this one? I call it bold and bright. More like belongs in the trash. <laughs> Sorry, I must have missed that one. Bold and brash NFL draft edition. Uh, it, it feels like everything is a bold prediction for the NFL draft. Man, uh, the way this is setting up. <laughs> like, as of right now, so we're recording this uh, 4.45 on Monday afternoon. As of right now, the new betting favorite to be the number one overall pick is Trayvon Walker. Sure. Which, if if that doesn't tell you kind of where this draft is heading, um, that look even even talking to when we had Trevor Sikama on Pro Football Focus when we had him on a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about the draft, he's still like, nah, I don't think he's going to go number one overall. And that was when it seemed like Trayvon Walker's stock continued to soar. And here we are, the week of the draft. Who knows what it means though in terms of the smokescreen. Always beware of the smoke screen. Right. They're all over the place. I don't really take anything 
too seriously, but betting odds I am interested in because I do think that 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 does kind of tend to show you where where things could fall. It's a little bit different than seeing an anonymous report at the last possible second or something like that. Um, any? Do you have any bold draft predictions off the top? I didn't ask you about that beforehand, but I was wondering if you had any any uh, in the holster. Yeah, so you know me. I am just an apex Alabama slander, right? I think that most of the Alabama guys get drafted too early. I, I really like every time that we've been linked to a guy, I'm like, oh, no, let's not do this. I think these guys are insane if they don't take Evan Neal. I truly don't get it. I, I get that they have Cam Robinson. I've never been impressed by him, not a day in my life. Uh, just to be honest with you, looking at Evan Neal on film and then seeing how he tested out, I'm just like, you already have your franchise quarterback that you've kind of lucked into in a way by just kind of being, you know, the, the best bad team. And then now you have a chance to pair him with, like, what I think is a generational tackle and just have the two hardest spots to fill locked up for the foreseeable future. And you're over here playing around with Aiden Hutchinson, who is like a fine player. I can tell you he's bad, but he's not like one of the Boses or Chase Young or like any of these guys that have come out. And, And in my opinion, and it's like, you guys already have the generational quarterback. Look at what happened with Andrew Luck. Do you want that again? I just like, I don't know, maybe I'm insane. I don't really I don't really look to see draft takes. I don't know if that, that take is out there, but like from the beginning I was like, Cam Robinson, that's who you that's that's what we're worried about here. We're thinking they about his him. feelings. They paid him. If you Okay. Uh, I think they franchised him, didn't they? Yeah. Why would you franchise him if you were gonna take Evan Neal? Uh, so you can let him thing. walk away whenever he wants. Who else do you have on the Jags that's worth keeping? They just signed a bunch of free agents. I'd be like, all right, dude, sorry, peace. We have salary cap. We we have our future tackle. We'll play you a guard if you want, because you're not big enough to play tackle. I just I don't know. I'm I'm literally like I said, like that's why I prefaced it the way I did. There have been so many Bamboo guys that I'm just like, I don't see it. I don't see what everybody else sees. For this guy, I'm like how do you not see it? That you guys are going to overdraft everybody from the school except for the one guy that seems like the easiest number one pick. Like, because they haven't had a number one pick, right? Um, we would know. Well, I mean, Trevor, Trevor Lawrence. No, I'm talking about Bama. They haven't had one in the same oh. year. Oh, oh gosh, wait, is that right? Uh, who would it be? They've had some guys yeah. go like two, three, five type of vibes, but two it was like six, right? Oh, or five, I think. Yeah, like. There, there's been a guy, D. Melden went really high, but like there, there have been a couple of guys, Trip Richardson, I believe, went three. Um, but yeah, no, it would have to be, right? Like that type of guy, it's like, he's looking at you right in the face. Why are you guys fine with taking D. Milner at five or whatever, but not Evan Neal at one? I don't get it. It's just, it's draft him. Like, yeah. <laughs> sorry, like that's my one thing. You didn't ask for it, we didn't talk about this, but it's, to me, glaringly obvious. I'm happy to be wrong, it's the Jag. That's the thing about the Jag is too, man. Any player, like my boys at the Jags, says, yeah, Shasson from LSU is bad over here. It's like, everybody's bad over there. I don't know what to tell you. Like, it's very hard to play the results with the Jags because, like, it's just, you know, anyway. I have this weird feeling, like, this 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 vision of Evan Neal maybe 10 years from now having racked up so many Pro Bowls but doing it for a team that just sucks yeah. and just has nothing else figured out and being the, 2020, the 2020s version of Joe Thomas. God, I love Joe I don't Thomas. know why. But they already have their quarterback. That, that thing. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. No. No. And look, I'm not. I'm not necessarily saying you're wrong. I, right. I, I don't want to go on record saying that. But I, I have this weird vision that he's going to be drafted by a team that's just going to suck. And they're going to be terrible. Maybe. Maybe it's the Giants who, who draft Evan Neal or something like that. And you're just going to look up. And be like, oh, that kind of sucks that Evan Neal has been to all these Pro Bowls. He's had all these All Pro honors, and you are still trying to figure out. When's that guy going to play in a playoff game? I don't know. And that's a weird thing to assume. 
for a guy who's just played in national championships in consecutive years, obviously. But I don't know. I, I, I just get that sort of vibe with him. And it's kind of strange to think that he might not be the first offensive tackle selected. So Saban never had possible. a number one pick at Alabama. Has had a number one pick. People forget Jamarcus Russell. Um, of course. <laughs> well, that doesn't, no, he doesn't get credit for that. He doesn't get credit for that. How does he not get credit for that? Because he was, he was drafted from Les Miles' team. I guess, man. But, like, Jimbo was there. Like, he developed him. Like, I, I literally give him credit for that. You want to give Les Miles credit for a quarterback? All right. Uh, you but can't yeah. give Saban credit for that. Yeah. No, that. Okay, so so then think about this. Like, how does that relate to, um, like, you could do, does Urban Meyer get credit for, um, I guess, no, Justin Fields is a bad example because I was after. Yeah, he was totally in and out. Yeah, I guess he gets credit for like Dwayne Haskins. Okay, never so mind. So Darius, um, or as he he changed his name to Marcel Darius at some point. Marcel Darius went three. Uh, Mari Cooper went four, and then yeah, Quentin Williams at three. Uh, yeah, so there's not really like there's not really that guy yet, which I think could just be Evan Neal. The story makes too much sense. Whatever. Could just be Evan Neal. Yeah. Um, my my bold prediction is that after all of this conversation about. No quarterbacks in the top 10. Um, could that be the first time that that happens <clears throat> since 2013? I think we get two quarterbacks in the top 10. Yep. I think Malik Willis, Kenny Pickett, both in the top 10. I don't know why. I got a feeling that all of this back and forth with the Panthers ends up with them taking someone in the top 10. And then I think maybe a team like the Steelers gets antsy and trades up mm -hmm. and gets into the top 10 and just kind of goes and says, you know what, screw it, let's get our guy. We'll, we'll, we'll fork over a first round pick next year, essentially copy the Bears model, what they did with Justin Fields, trading up to be able to, to get him and get rid of that first rounder, which would have been really nice this year. Um, not bitter about that at all. But I think so, somebody on, on does something tip, like I, I, And I'm not saying, like, this is just objective, right? So I haven't really, we, the Saints haven't needed anything in the draft, honestly, since, like, Lattimore, right? Like, and so obviously, like, as a Bears fan, like, how should I temper my expectations? Because the Saints have two draft picks, and I'm starting to feel the terror of we're going to be the team that trades up to draft Kenny Pickett. Like, I'm just, I feel it. I'm scared, dude. Uh, I don't know that they would do that. I, I don't know that they would they would necessarily go in that direction. They seem pretty content with the quarterback situation that they have. Oddly enough, with Jameis and Taysom Hill, <laughs> man, they were they weren't too content to go pursue Watson with all they came with that. So I don't know. I'm I'm getting a little bit there where it's like, are we actually are we going to be the dumb team this year? Because we've never been yeah. the dumb team once. We're always the team that takes the guy no one's heard of and he's like a ten year starter. It's like. Oh no, we're starting to really like send it. This isn't good. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, maybe like Falcons or something like that. You know, that's another <laughs> one. That's a really good possibility. Yeah. Um, okay, let's go to the Facebook group. We've got a few of these that are really, really good. I was, I was kind of wondering like how how many people who listen to the show actually also follow the NFL pretty closely. And that's kind of why sometimes I, I hold back on talking about as much draft stuff because I think people just care about their own specific guys. Right. They care about whether or not their guy from their school got disrespected or something like that. Like that's, it's more about that. Nobody really cares that much if no, N'Kobe Dean is in the right scheme in the NFL and what the two deep looks like with well, him and his we path do. to playing We're N'Kobe Dean appreciators. Well, what, what I'm saying is like, it's it's more about whether or not N'Kobe Dean goes in the first in the first round right, yeah. or he goes in the top 15 as opposed to that. Like, you know, specific teams, I don't, I don't think people care as much about that. So I don't, I don't like getting into the weeds too much 
with that. But we do have some like kind of a little bit more team focused type stuff with some SEC players and predictions related to that. Emery says, the Falcons waste another first round pick on a Pac-12 DB that doesn't pan out. Also, the <laughs> Packers, my team, which by the way, did not know that Emery was a Packer fan. Shame on him for that. Um, he he says, tried to they invite me whenever the Saints played the Packers in like Jacksonville randomly, which feels like a thing that happened. He, he was like trying to link up with me, but I had something going on. Yeah, he's a, he's a staunch Packers fan. That was the first game of last season. Yeah, remember? yeah that was the Jacobs yeah. game. Yeah, with the hurricane. Yeah, who could forget? Hurricane, there we go. That's what happened. Yes. It was the hurricane. Yep. Yeah. Uh, he says the Packers, my team, don't pick a wide receiver in the first or second round, resulting in getting booted by a mediocre team in the playoffs again. Um, I can tell you this, and I told Emery this in the Facebook group as well. I've been telling, um, I, I got a buddy who does does mock drafts and stuff. He's in the, the draft field mm-hmm. and does a lot of Packers related content and he keeps mocking Traylon Burks to the Packers. Look. I can't have Traylon Burks and Justin Jefferson in the division. <laughs> that is a horror torturing. fiction. That is <laughs> like guys that I have just gone to bat for repeatedly. I cannot have that. There, there is nothing I will sweat out more than Traylon Burks falling to that level. If he falls to the back half, like that point of the first round, and I'm sitting there watching Jahan Dotson come off the board in the first round, and we're talking about all these other guys. Look, I, I get it, Drake London, you play basketball. Did you ever hear that? Mm-hmm. Um, and all these other guys are coming off the board, and Traylon Burks is like the sixth receiver picked, and the Packers get him late in the first round. My takes were right, but it would cost. <laughs> I I will I will hate night one. I can tell you that. I will show up to this podcast, and and I will be I will be very very frustrated on Friday, like in, in a different kind of mood, because that would just be look. I'd be happy for the kid. I hope he goes in the first round. Yada yada yada. But my happiness is more important than that. Okay. Yeah, that's another, I feel like we're pretty aligned on this. Maybe not the first receiver overall, but like, what are we not seeing on Traylon Burks here? How is he falling past all these guys? He did everything you could want him to do. He's big, he's physical, he's fast. He fit in an offense that was weird. I made him do all kinds of weird stuff. He's a good jump ball receiver. He's a good scramble play receiver. Like, again, whatever team gets him, we're going to go just like Justin Jefferson. How did we see this coming? Buddy, I'm ready to say I did. Yes, yes, we did. And we talked about it with Trevor. It's like, he was being compared to DK Metcalf. Which, why, why are human beings compared to, D, compared to DK Metcalf in the Combine? Right. If, if you don't test out as well as he does, that, that's not an indictment on you and kind of your skill set. And I would argue, Traylon Burke showed way more in college than DK Metcalf ever oh, did yeah. because DK was hurt. And DK had these issues and those were his red flags. And Traylon Burke's had such a different career, but I think you saw this like, this physical comp and he's going to do things that you just don't see at that size at 6'3", 230 pounds, and he's going to blow you away with his 40 time and all these different things. I'm like, the top end speed is there. We know that once that guy gets going, man, like we, we've seen it. We've seen it many, many a time. The ball skills are there. I don't care if his hand size isn't as big as Shaq. All right. We, <laughs> we will live with, it, with his hands the way that they are. They are just fine. That is not a concern for me whatsoever. I know I can line him up all over the place and he's going to go make plays for me. I know that he's not going to be upset about getting carries in the backfield. I'm not saying he's going to be used in like a Debo Samuel type role, but they weren't afraid to do that with him in Arkansas. And he didn't exactly protest that. So that I wouldn't be surprised if we see him doing stuff like that. I, I'm just, I've said it before. I'm all in on, on Traylon Burks. If he goes to the Packers, it's a bad night. <laughs> 
All right. Um, let's stay in the division. Michael Dark says. <laughs> <laughs> and now for some the, the Detroit Lions. Yeah, we'd be <laughs> They're still the loins. That's what I would always say to my brother. When, whenever they would get this build up, talking about like, oh, the Lions are going to make a playoff push this year. I'd watch him. I'd watch the Bears somehow sneak away with a win. I'd say they're still the loins. Damn. They always are. Uh, Michael says the Lions take at least three players from the greatest defense of all time. He's referring to Georgia. Right. He's I, already I lived the fanfic with Matt Stafford too, so I actually am envious of that because that would be like obviously you know it's Detroit, so they did the best they could with him, but like that would be like Burrow going to the Saints for me. That that's super cool. He kind of like let me realize that as time went on because he's like a Georgia. He, I believe he like went to Georgia and Michigan, and is from Michigan, and is a Lions fan. Pretty pretty cool situation. So they would they would take Trayvon in the first, like right there, right? right I would assume. And then you would probably need one of those defensive guys to fall to the second round. Like, um, I don't know that Jordan Davis is a scheme fit. Can't tell you <laughs> I know a ton about the Lions scheme. Um, but like if they went after an Kobe Dean or, or, or something like that, or if Pickens fell to, to the second round, um, I think that that would, be, that would be on the table. Yeah, I mean, Georgia's gonna have six, five defensive players drafted in the first two rounds, I think. I think that's that's on the table for them, which is kind of crazy. I mean, they could have... Okay, so let's go to this one from Caleb Tillman. This will lead right into it. Caleb says, N'Kobe Dean sneaks into the first round, giving Georgia six first-rounders. round uh, six first rounders. N'Kobe Dean should not be sneaking into the first round. <laughs> I understand why Caleb said that, because you look at some of these mocks and you're just scratching your head going, wait a minute, wait a minute. W- what are we doing here? We're overthinking the crap out of this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Josh Pate had the had it had it best. They tweeted out like, how many how many of these guys that are drafted ahead of Nicobe Dean are going to be sitting at home watching him in the Pro Bowl like ten years from now? Right, a lot of them. Um, I don't think he should be Georgia's last first rounder, but the path that that he outlined there to tie. 2004 Miami, 2021 Bama for six first rounders. That's the record. Mm-hmm. Is Trayvon Walker, Jordan Davis, Nicobe Dean, George Pickens, Devontae Wyatt, and then Lewis Seen, the safety. Um, which I've seen him. Peter King had him mocked in his first round as well, which kind of caught me off guard. I was like, dang, all right. Didn't realize we were going that far with Lewis Seen, but here we are. Um, this is an insane draft class. I know, like last year was also an insane draft class, like in terms of just how things could have happened. And last year ended up kind of being like one of the weird ones where nothing really. Like, there weren't really any crazy moves. Other than the Bears, honestly, they probably made the biggest splash. Yeah. It's like, yeah. this is one of those years, seriously, like, more, I understand this happens every year, more than the other year. It's like, you could have some guys where they're totally off the board for different teams, for what I'm hearing. And then, like, if a guy doesn't get picked at five, he might fall all the way down to 20-something. And so, teams are really going to be, like, the, like, it seems like there are going to be a lot of smart teams that make out with excess value in the first even couple of rounds because we keep yeah. talking about these guys. Like, Dean, we're just like, if you can get him late in the first, are you serious? I, I would love to know, I would love to truth serum all of these front offices and find out who's putting out this negative information about Kobe Dean. Because <laughs> it's there's gotta be some of it, right? Like if, if somebody hasn't fallen in love with that kid, I'm just gonna be blown away. I'm gonna be absolutely blown away. Like what, what, are, what are we doing here in terms of evaluation if that guy isn't highly regarded? That, that just to me would make absolutely no sense. But yeah, you're, you're probably right. Could be all over the place with some of these guys. Uh, Scott Strauss says, whichever team drafts Damian Pierce, Dan Mullen becomes their OC to ensure that he never gets more than seven touches in a game, allowing him to rush for 15,000 yards over his 35-year NFL career. 
I keep wanting to stop the Dan Mullen jokes, but they keep giving. Like, I just keep being like, he hasn't been coached in almost a year. It's like, but it's so funny. Damian Pierce is the single most bittersweet player in this draft. Uh, there, there are going to be so many Florida fans just wishing the best for that kid. Wishing the best, but man, is it going to be tough to watch him score so many touchdowns. It's another guy just like Alvin Kamara. When Alvin Kamara went to the Saints, because I had worked at SDS at the time, I watched him play, and I was like, everyone's insane? Cool. <laughs> I love yeah. it. The, the thing that sucks is you can't even brag about him. Right. You, you can't even do that because you realize how misused he was. Yep. And you find yourself just saying over and over again, crap. This guy was great, and we couldn't even appreciate him. I'm happy for the kid and all that, but again, my needs are most important. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, being objective comes second to my team win game. That's yes, how it works exactly. over here on this side. No matter what, yes. Uh, Ross Elkins agrees with you. Evan Neal first overall, and Dean slips to the second due to size concerns. He'll be the biggest steal of the draft. No notes. No notes. <laughs> Good. That's the tweet. Can I, can I block anybody that says that's the tweet from now on? I haven't seen that in like three years, just to be honest. No, come on. You've seen it more recent than that. Maybe you muted it and you don't even know. No, I'm going to say that specifically and tag you a couple of times. Please don't. While you're working, like when you're trying to find something, it's just going to get pop out. That's the tweet. God. Uh, all right. Daniel Priest says, John Gruden guest picker for the Raiders. There are no bad predictions in Bold and Brash. <laughs> Are just ones <laughs> that make us scratch our head and go, huh, all right. That's one of them. That was one where I kind of zoned out because I was trying to read the next one. <laughs> I heard you read that. That would be chaos. That's funny. Uh, I, I don't think they're uh, probably not going back down that road. I think, uh, I think, I think John Gruden's going to get a little bit of a little bit of time off. From he'll be doing lots of. Uh, he's screen. not even doing Hooters commercials anymore. He'll be a lot hanging out on the beaches in Tampa. Is what he'll be doing. Yeah, and he'll he'll just be be hanging out, probably eating a lot of Hooters because that seems like a very John Gruden thing to do. But uh, yeah, don't think he'll be uh, representing the Raiders anytime soon. Oh, speaking of eating. I need Jordan Davis to go somewhere with like a big media market and a good restaurant scene because I want him in more commercials. We've talked about him being in billboards over here in Atlanta and doing like the size matters things with Morgan and Morgan. I want him, you know what I'm saying, in like Kansas City where they get that barbecue. Even maybe in New Orleans, I would love him walking out to Real Big by the big timers. I want him involved as much as possible. I, I want nothing but greatness for my Chunky King. I'm still amazed at how small that championship ring looked on his <laughs> It looks like a catcher's mitt, Connor. <laughs> it needed to be a belt to fit him. She's like, who are you? Yeah, I, I do hope he goes to, to like a place where he's actually able to have success and it's not just this instant storyline of, oh, this guy can't get in shape. And yeah. You can only play him two downs. Like, ah, no. I feel like in the right situation, he's going to be just so much fun to watch at the next level. Uh, let's go to this one from. Oh, this is pretty. This is pretty team specific here. Uh, sorry, Nick. We'll skip yours. We kind of already hit on this one. Nick said uh, Georgia will have five first rounders and break the record with fifteen total draft picks. Man, that'd be a lot. That'd be a lot. I don't think they have enough on the offensive side of the ball to be able to get that done. That's my guess. I could be wrong about that. Another guy that a team is going to get, and we're going to go. How did we not see this coming? Hoover, great. George Pickens. Hoover, great. Yeah, that's a guy. Uh, you know, he can come off the board a little bit later, and then people are going to be, "Where was this?" 
right in front of you with a torn ACL. I, I'm not. I, I, I'm the pushback because I'm I'm one of those where if, if Pickens went to the Packers, I'd be like, fine. Oh, buddy, if he goes not to someone like that. Aaron Rodgers who gets him in shape and makes him do what he wants to do, oh, that's a nightmare uh, team for him. You want buddy, him to go I, like somewhere where they can't manage guys. I, I've seen plenty of of Packers receivers torment my my bears mm-hmm. and the 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 amount of routes that you see like a Devonte adams run you you just you realize that there there is a very unique skill set in the way that he can get separation i don't quite think that george pickens even if he ends up having a great nfl career i don't quite think he's on that level just yet to be like kind of that that go-to guy for rogers maybe that's going to come back to bite me and packers are going to take him and he's going to become an all pro in year one but i don't know i guess i'm the pushback on that uh, True Page says Tampa drafts yet another defensive lineman and decides to just build a whole team of defensive linemen around Brady doing away with skill positions and offensive line. Wait a minute. Does Tampa not have Mike Evans? Do they not have Chris Goblin? Antonio Brown, I, I don't know what, what the latest <laughs> Does is. Does anyone have Antonio Brown? We are all partial Antonio Brown owners, I guess, at this point, because he's yeah. owned by no man. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. Um, last, last I checked, they're, they're pretty good at Skill positions? But yeah. I don't know. Uh, Keyshawn Vaughn, Leonard Fournette. Keyshawn Vaughn, Red Mamba, who could forget, greatest nickname ever, former Vandy star. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they're all right. I think they're all right at skill positions. Makes sense. That they, that's, what, that's why they do what they do. But yeah, you prefer them to get some nice, nice pieces on the offensive line, maybe to build around Kyle Trask, quarterback of the future, Tampa. <laughs> I just say things sometimes that I know you're going to have that exact reaction to. You know, man, I hope this dark contrast. <laughs> I'm, I'm rooting for it. So, yeah, uh, let's let's end with this one. And I, I kind of want to tie it into uh, something else about Stingley. Tom Branham says Oregon defensive end Kayvon Thibodeau falls out of the top ten. I'd have a tough time drafting him that early. I really would. Man, like some of this stuff with him is just very Josh Rosen like that's not a comp anybody's gonna make I compared him to Kyrie mm-hmm. I think he's kind of out there like that and well people are doing something with him too if you listen to like you know takes from league people are like oh well it's like a race thing that he's like following the story it's like have you ever heard him interviewed he just seems like a word I can't say on here it's just it seems like he's kind of doing it to himself like I Josh Rosen's a really good one because that's the guy my buddy's cold take me with I loved his interview going into the draft where he's like ah oh, you got 12 mistakes or 11 mistakes ahead of me da, da, da. not not being wrong again sorry yeah we, we play the results a little bit with that too yeah we definitely do I mean just because Josh Rosen very clearly had interests outside of football and that was sort of question doesn't necessarily mean that's the exact reason that he failed but at the same time, if you're making a big-time investment like that, I have no problem with a team having cold feet on, on, on somebody in that spot. I, I really don't. I think it's a big-time investment. And I think if you if you go out and you continue to like defend your reasoning for that, it's, it's a little bit of a tougher look. But I think with him and I think with Stingley, I don't know. I don't know if, what, what's going to happen to them on Thursday night. I'm fascinated to see it. I really am. Because if you were going to predict somebody who is being mocked in the top five, who could fall like outside of the top 15 or outside of the top 20, mm-hmm. that w- those would be my two picks. 
That's it, those guys are specifically who I was talking about earlier. Exactly. Yes. yes. It's like there are plenty of teams who, like you just said, it's like, and especially if you're not, <laughs> apparently we're just a, a lion slandering podcast. Sorry, but it's like if you're in an environment like that where they just ripped it down to the studs and they're building it back up, it's like you don't want that type of locker room guy really like you don't want that guy who you know like kind of kind of quits when it gets hard like hasn't really shown that they're like real like worker type of guys it's like uh because yeah if that's your star on defense you know what i'm saying like akuda obviously with lines is already there but it's like i don't know if if you don't like i, I gotta understand getting cold feet if, if you can't fit him into a system where you know like we're talking about the packers it's like here's how we play football figure it out or don't don't care it's like if you have to give them latitude because you have nothing else could be tough i might regret saying this i i would I would take Sauce Gardner over Derek Stanley. I don't hate I that would. take. It depends on team fit, really, because Sauce has been nothing but a professional so far in his career. His quarterback rating in single coverage this year? Insane. Zero. Yep. Zip. Yep. Nada. And, like, that's yeah. the thing, too. It's, like, whenever um, LSU, like, lost their lost their DB coach to Florida and everything, I was kind of, like, looking at the recent DBs, and it's, like, this room has just kind of started, like, getting nicked up, starting, like... Like, you don't want to call them quitters necessarily, but it's like the consistency hasn't been there. And so it's like, I, I just, it's hard for me as an LSU fan to even pitch you. Like, if you were like a Texans fan, like, why should I have signaling? It's like, look at his 2012, or sorry, 2020 film. He's obviously a star. We've talked about him before, but it's 2019, like, 2019. Oh, you're film. right. Sorry, 2019. Yeah, yeah. Wow, how could I forget the good year of LSU football? My bad. <laughs> <laughs> forget 2020. Good point. <laughs> that never happened. Uh, but yeah, if you look at the 2019 film, it's like, yeah, like, it's all obviously there. But if you're going to tell me you don't want him because of the obvious reasons, I'm not going to call you an idiot, you know? Yeah, you just can't. Mm -hmm. Uh, draft should be really, really interesting. Um, I don't feel like I have a good feel for it at all. Who, at all. Who you it'll be really bench. exciting. Uh, they don't have first-round picks. So we don't have to talk oh, about Oh, true. Round. You're right. Aha. Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. Can't blow a first-round pick if we don't have a first-round pick, Connor. <laughs> yes, exactly. I, I, I will make that determination based on who falls out of the first round and who I maybe like the most. Maybe that's what we'll have to do on Thursday night is I'll, I'll give you like my that my guy that I'm, that I'm hoping for that continues to slip because it feels like we're going to get some of these surprises in the first round. These guys who are stunningly available in round two. So, uh, oh, we'll oh have one more guy. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Demarvin Leal, uh, another guy. Yeah, yeah. That's like solid college production. Falling out of the first round. What are we doing here? Tested well. That could be a guy. We talk about guys at the top of the second round that could really help out some guys. I think. Yeah, Demarvin Leal. The scheme questions with him. Bit of a tweener. That's been discussed a lot. Somebody that I, I thought would have made a lot of sense in the first round. Maybe after seeing all these mocks wherein he wasn't in the first round, that is one of these kind of overblown things. And it was just one of these, these teams gets him in the back half of you know, Tampa, Kansas City, something like that. And they just kind of plug him in. Maybe they make that happen. Just talked about Tampa getting defensive linemen. So I was about to say, that's that who I sense. don't want being a Tampa. <laughs> yes. Talking about staying in the division, things we don't want to see. We want to get all the good players out of the NFC South here on this podcast. Again, agenda yes. is number one. Yes, yes. Uh, shout out to Drew Page, by the way. Made a, uh, a fast food bracket in the Saturday Down South podcast Facebook group. Just, mm -hmm. just did it. Just had the time to do it um, and took the initiative and let's go vote on that. Weigh in. A lot of opinions, a lot of takes flying around all over the place with that. Um, so thank you to Drew to, for making content like that, going out there and doing it. If you have not, leave us a five-star review. 
Um, something that we, you know, we don't want to charge or anything for this podcast. We very limited ads on this podcast for those listening. So if you could give us a five-star review, it'd be greatly appreciated if you've not done that yet. Subscribe to this podcast. If you have not already, join the Facebook group. Hear me and Red on air with Figuring Out or Bold and Brush. Thanks guys. Talk soon.